Welcome back to... Why did I say? Welcome back. I do the year. I mean, if there's any way to, to start the last episode of 2020, that, that might be the way. Welcome back to the FS Jam podcast. Recording on the 29th of December just between me and Anthony today. And we're going to be speaking about where we think JavaScript and FS Jam frameworks are going to go in 2021. How are you, Anthony? Doing great. Did you have a good holiday? Super. We don't really call it holidays over here. We just call it Christmas. And it's quite an American thing to say, happy holidays. Some people will argue with you about that, but I'm cool with making it agnostic. I don't have a problem with it. So much has happened in 2020. We just released our roundtable episode, episode eight, Brandon Byers, Chris Ball and David Price talking about where we'd like to see certain things go in the year and a reflection of the current year. We brought up so many topics. One of the main ones that came up between the group was what is FS Jam? I've been thinking about this ever since we've done that podcast. We left it really up in the air of what we think it is, but maybe we should almost define it in 2021. One, full-to-back database support, a full application. Two, generator commands and CLI support to help out. And three, I think we forgot, but is so critical, auth included. One of the things we obviously brought up, should Gatsby be here? Should Next be here? And one of the things that I forgot about in that conversation, one of the best things about Blitz, Bison and Redwood, it has an auth package that is ready to go. Super easy to get a logged in user that is secure. With Next or Gatsby, that's not quite there and it's not quite as easy without using third party solutions. So I definitely think that's one of the biggest points of what makes FS Jam. Database support, CLI slash generators, authentication, and four, CD. We mention acronyms a lot. If you didn't know what CD stood for, it's continuous deployment. When you upload to GitHub, it's automatically going to run all your tests, run the builders, generate the code, and upload it to a live service. To kind of break that term down, you also frequently hear it along with CI. CI-CD is something you'll frequently hear, CI being continuous integration. I usually think of it as the deployment part is what actually gets it onto the website and why something like Netlify and Vercel are really nice because they're set up where you can push a change to your GitHub and then that triggers the build. So to me, that is like continuous deployment because you're not actually deploying, just pushing your Git repo is what gets you to that step. Do you agree with the auth layer being an important part? That's exactly what I was about to go into because I was listening to a really great conversation, Software Sessions, which is a podcast by Jeremy Young, and he had Ryan Chenke on. We're talking to about getting on as well, and he is someone who's really specialized in auth, and he used to work at Auth0, even though now that he's at Prisma, this is still a topic he's really interested in, and it was so funny listening to their conversation because they were talking about how hard auth was and all the ways to do it and how to set it up with third-party services, and then they described like 
their dream auth system and what they were describing sounds exactly like what we do for auth in redwood and blitz how we've got it set up into the library how we're able to use hooks and how those hooks are able to manage most of what we do so i think what we're doing with auth is really on the forefront of like how to integrate auth into a framework and i'm glad that you want to highlight it as a key piece of fs jam because i think it's something that other people are looking to and trying to find a solution and we potentially have one I agree and it's one of the things that you can so easily forget but it's super important and it can take a lot of developer man hours using a framework is taking away all of that layer for you and saying use our standardized set of hooks and you're ready to go the next one front to back database support right now our main method is prisma 2 as we go forward other options will start appearing i think one of them will see more integrations into fauna maybe even through prisma when mongo and fauna a document database support may come along. That is also super important that a lot of developers waste. It's not wasting, but it's which ORM do I pick? Which database do I pick? You know, these are all things that you can pick an opinionated option and you never need to look at that ORM again. I think that's roughly the five main pillars of FSJAM and why Gatsby and Next don't quite fall into that right now. Well, as Brandon was saying, like they're not trying to be, and I think not categorizing them as FSJM should not be seen as a slight or as like exclusionary so much as we're defining the actual goals that these different projects have and the ability to, as Brandon was saying, build on top of Gatsby and Next to enable FSJM projects, I think is more so what we're going to see and some of the things I actually want to talk about today aren't going to be projects that I would consider FS Jam projects, but I would consider them projects that could be used as pieces to FS Jam projects. Because I think we've talked a lot about, you know, some interesting stuff that could be happening in Svelte or Nuxt. So I kind of want to dive into some of those projects that I've been learning about over the last couple of months and kind of where I see them in their development cycle. And also what you're talking about in terms of integration with the database and generators there's also some stuff on the provider level that i think is coming up that could be really interesting in that area Facebook released a proof of concept over Christmas that allowed components to be rendered by a server and sent to the front end with zero runtime. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. I've not fully read into it or watched the tutorial. It's a very experimental way to, as you say, yeah, render basically like throw your components straight into the server and render them and even pull data straight out of the database so it's really incredible like for us to kind of see this at the end of the year because it's very much validating all these kind of like full stack ideas that we've been talking about the entire year this is the only thing tech twitter talked about for like a whole week so it was it was a pretty big deal yes we should explain it as simple as possible 
I also think SSR is kind of this, you know, it's questionable. Is this SSR or not? They're insisting it's not. They'll insist very strongly that it is not. This is entirely different. And they have lots of good reasons for why that I don't yet understand. So let's explain what these concepts are at high level as possible. As you understand, React adds and retracts elements into a DOM tree. So that's adding divs, HTML, removing, adding them, and adding functionality to them in the most basic aspects. How that is done is using client JavaScript. When the page gets loaded, JavaScript bundles start to get executed. And what comes to that is that it says, okay, now I need you to append all of this HTML DOM structure to the tree. It renders the HTML. That is client-side rendering, right? Anthony, please nod. That's right, right? I was pulling up because I was, I know we were talking about this, so I'm pulling up the GitHub to the server under React server components so we can actually talk intelligent about it. <laughs> That's fine. We're going to talk about SSR next. So the client gets given a blank HTML document and then the client JavaScript builds a whole HTML DOM structure. SSR, when you call a request, you're not actually calling a HTML file, you're actually calling a server endpoint that then builds a whole HTML document with the DOM structure already injected into it and then sent to your client. Is that right? I believe that's right. Sounds right. Yeah. There's a really great RFC on this from the team that we'll link to in the very first, because they have a super long FAQ section. The very first one is, does this replace SSR? So they call them React Server Components. They see them as complementary because they say that SSR is for non-interactive client components, but that you still have to pay the cost of downloading, parsing, and executing them after the initial HTML is loaded. But if you combine them, then the server components render first and the client components render into HTML while the components are getting hydrated. And so then when you combine them, you get a fast startup while also reducing the amount of JS that needs to be downloaded. It's almost like hard SSR, for example, your tree is say half compiled by default the server compiles the components, so say your navbar, and then sends that fully compiled navbar to the client. This to me makes sense because a lot of the stuff that Next has been talking about and the type of work that all this has been around hasn't been about like finding the correct way to render and like find the place to render. It's about rendering where is most effective for each individual place in the life cycle. So this kind of finds the places where it's most optimized and like splitting the difference between a lot of those different areas. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I definitely recommend checking out this FAQ section because then it also talks about, you know, how this relates to GraphQL, how this relates to things like Apollo and Relay, how it relates to things like service workers. Like there's a lot going on here. What about suspense and concurrent mode? 
So this is actually something that I do know a little bit about. This is possible because of suspense and concurrent mode. So if you didn't have suspense and concurrent mode enabled, you wouldn't be able to do this. Explain what they are first. I don't even know. It's a way to make React asynchronous. So concurrent is like concurrency, so having multiple things running at once. You can think of it like parallelization, even though it's not the same, but it's basically, yeah, multiple things happening at once in time. That's what concurrency is. Explain it in a use case. Why would I need parallelization of my UI? Imagine you have a chart that is displaying a lot of data points and you're say sliding over time. So you want to increase the chart or shrink the chart. because you want to see more data points or less data points. The more data points you have, each of those data points has to render individually. So all of those will be slowed down. So you want to render all of the data points concurrently so that you could create your visualizations in a way that is smooth and doesn't have jank. And this is Dan Abramov's classic example. He has a talk that he gave like two years ago where he demonstrated this with a chart graph kind of thing. We'll link to that as well. It's just like, so you can get a really smooth, buttery experience in your UI while you're doing a million things because we're, you know, computer hackers and we always want to have a billion things on our screen at all time. Think about 50 tabs versus two tabs. There's another good example. Does concurrency and suspense come before this? If you wanted to enable this feature when it's potentially released, is it rewrite or just add concurrency and suspense? If you look at the package.json of the example app, you can see that they're using what's called the experimental build of React. And so this is what you need to do to enable concurrent mode and suspense. It's basically kind of like how most projects will have like a canary release or a next release. It's the same kind of idea. This is what a lot of Facebook has been running on for like over a year. It's what Blitz has been running on this whole time because a lot of projects have been using suspense and concurrent mode this this entire year. It's like Redwood. It's like, you know, people use something in production even though it's not considered in production because people feel safe doing it because they understand it well enough. But it's has been work that has been done to enable things like server-side components. You can't have server-side components if you're not on the experimental build. To what I understand of suspense is, it's basically in its most simplest form is splitting up your bundle and then lazy loading when you need the bits. So suspense then is another downstream effect of concurrent mode. Concurrent mode is a kind of whole rewrite to make React async and then suspense is now that we have it working, we can use suspense to be careful in terms of where we're reloading our DOM. So like you said, it's about splitting up your bundle and lazy loading, and then also about being more intelligent about when things have been loaded so that you don't have a flash of loading screen for a, like a quick amount of milliseconds. So it's partly about having a nicer, smoother experience and being more aware of what's being loaded and how long it's going to take to load. So does this mean I'm going to be writing more JavaScript to write less JavaScript? Yes, exactly. The, the, the point is that you're going to be able to rewrite your React components in a way that allows you to take out a lot of conditional logic of figuring out what's happening with all the loading, which is why this is really interesting for something like cells, because this is in the same kind of area of data fetching and how all this data fetching stuff works. Let's take the most simple example of a component in React. When I'm logged in, it says, hi, Chris. And when I'm logged out, it says, please log in, click the button to log in. That's two different states. And so we're saying when server components comes out, 
what that's going to do is use your code to work out if they're logged in or not and then just give the given built component you know i'm not sure how it's going to interact with off and that sort of stuff because this is more about loading just loading data and data fetching the the auth layer is kind of a i think a separate component from this so that's why that just wouldn't be an example that i think i would go to it'd be more so like if you're loading your blog posts you'll be able to specify bringing in the blog posts as separate from your outer ui when your blog posts are loading you would have those inside your kind of async components so think about your component tree and think about like your cell that's loading your blog posts that you would just put inside tags that would allow them to become suspended and so that's all you have to do you're just kind of adding tags around the things that you want to make async those become enabled to then do all the async stuff and they'll be able to tell whether the data has been loaded or not and will basically handle when to show the loading spinners and things like that much like how a cell does so this is solving a lot of the same issues that cells do but it's doing it within react without having to build a framework to handle those things i think i got it that explanation will only make sense to probably Redwood people because I'm using all this cell terminology to explain it, but um, it's the best I got. I think right now, React is thinking three steps ahead. They've put an RFC out for three steps ahead from where most developers are. How many developers have concurrency and suspense in production? Do any Redwood apps have it? I don't think so. Well, that's the thing, though. Because of how your cell is architected, Redwood has solved a lot of the problems that Suspense was going to. So this is something I've been thinking about all year and always wondering, once Suspense gets here, how we're going to deal with all of this in Redwood. So we get to find out soon. Soon, 2021, the year of suspense. Yep. Little pun. First one to make it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Something me and Anthony did want to talk about is technologies that we're interested in, that we could see in 2021, that are not necessarily just about FS Jam. The first technology, portals. Have you heard about portals? I do not, but I do know how to think in portals. Google Chrome portals it's called it's the only one with the code right now seamless navigation on the web but isn't that iframes is what it's going to be compared to it's a new kind of iframe basically that's the worst sales pitch i've ever heard right there <laughs> okay let me explain it it is like iframes iframes are the closest technology that you could refer to that's what the main blog post says. It says, think of them like an iframe. They allow for embedding, but unlike an iframe, they come with features to navigate to their content. Exactly. I'm going to put it in the most simplest explanation for you. You're on a blog and you click, I want to share to Facebook. Actually, as soon as you click open, you're going to open a portal. The portal is then going to open Facebook over the page you currently are on. Your browser then says, 
I've navigated to Facebook now. You then share it and then the portal gets closed, leaving you back on the page you were on. Technically, you never navigated away from that page, but you did. You navigated through a portal to Facebook and then back away from Facebook. Jake Archibald? Yeah, I know Jake Archibald. He's a Google developer expert. He's a great advocate. He currently did the talk about this. I see great uses for this in Everfund. Most developers can click their hands together and understand is how many times do you need to run someone else's UI code on your website? For example, PayPal. PayPal opens a box. You click login through the box. The box closes. That can all be replaced with portals. So it would be really useful to integrate with something like OAuth is kind of what it sounds like. Yes. Or to have like the shareability functionality. One of the things we want to do with Everfund is build a suite of tools that allow you to integrate your current website into Everfund. You'd get one of our donation portals. Right now, you would download our JavaScript script, add it to the page, add it to the DOM, and then the JavaScript executes when you click that DOM button. But if we had a portal, you could just say, navigate to this portal, allow the user to donate, and then close the portal in, hopefully, five lines of code. That's very universal. Portals are currently behind a flag in Chrome, but they've been developing it since 2018. So maybe 2021 will be the year we will get portals. Sounds like it's it's a really low level primitive in the sense that what you're describing sounds super general and like it could be used for a lot of stuff. I'm still trying to kind of wrap my mind around it. Think of how you would create an iframe and you replace iframe SRC with portal SRC. I don't create iframes. Exactly. But a lot of people do. I use them in my business. Every single auth provider you use uses iframes to navigate and keep auth states. Stripe does it. Portals can be navigated to and from. So you can navigate into the portal and then out of the portal. An iframe cannot. You're literally looking through the iframe box. Everybody hates iframes, but nobody wants to see what iframes can become. And it's kind of what portals are. It's like the next generation of iframes. Yeah, iframes is one of those things, like I got a whole list of these, is things that you run into all the time are super important and that no bootcamp or video tutorial I've ever seen has ever felt the need to teach. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. It's just like iframes are completely absent from the curriculum. Super hard thing is communication between an iframe and the web page. For example, you have to do it through the Windows proxy of the browser API. Portals use post messages only. So it's super straightforward. I'm hoping 2021 will be the year for mass support. What's next? I talked about this briefly on an episode that I now realize has not aired yet. But um, when we talked to Jason from Prisma, I asked him about AWS AppSync. And so I'm really interested in AWS AppSync. 
So what it is, it's a managed API gateway for GraphQL APIs. So it's something that sits in the middle between a lot of your different services at AWS. So if you were to say build something and you have your functions, which are using AWS Lambda, and you've got a database, which is DynamoDB, you could use AppSync to be kind of the thing that glues those together so that when you go to your UI and you create a blog post, it is using a GraphQL schema that has been created by AppSync and then that schema is what's used for your functions to then save to your database. I find it interesting because it's the only thing that I look at and I very clearly see the Redwood architecture reflected in it to me because everyone compares Redwood and Blitz and we've spent the whole year kind of talking about how they're actually super different. But to me, when I look at the types of things people like Natter Dabbit are building with AWS AppSync and Lambdas and things like that, to me, it looks almost identical to Redwood. So that's what makes it really interesting to me. I have a lot of respect for Natter, and this also goes along with the entire Amplify suite of tools, which is a CLI that allows you to create basically this architecture that I'm talking about in a way that allows you to generate a lot of stuff as if you're using, say, the Redwood CLI. So I think once you add in the Amplify CLI, that kind of mirrors a lot of the CLI functionality you get from Redwood. And then the AppSync GraphQL layer is very similar to the Redwood API. Yeah, this is something that I've already been digging into a little bit, start building out little proof of concepts that I'm gonna be doing at least two talks about this in January. Just so I understand AppSync, uh, no, Amplify? Yeah, so AppSync is the GraphQL API. It's the more lower level building block and then amplifies a larger suite of tools that combines a lot of stuff with AppSync. Just like you have Google Cloud and Google saying, you don't like Google Cloud? Well, Firebase is everything specifically designed certain ways that you don't know it's Google Cloud. Amplify is basically saying, you don't like AWS's dashboard? We'll do all that bit for you. This is a really interesting comparison because you're partly right. The connection here is this all came out of mobile. Firebase and the Amplify AppSync, these were all the backends that mobile developers were using. This is your whole React Native mobile people taking over the world thesis partly coming into play here, is that this is all the mobile infrastructure that is now eating into web. It's a big area. AWS can be super scary. If something can sit on top of AWS, like I guess Amplify, I could be behind that. I don't want to use AWS where I don't need to. That's for my second pick. We'll get to that one after you do another one. <laughs> uh, sure, we're going to. My next pick, the classic React Native for Web. React Native for Web has been plodding along in the background slightly behind React. What it's focused on is bringing all the lessons from React Native to the web. React is DOM-based, but React Native for web is, there's a term. I usually hear view-based because you have a view tag, right? View-based, yeah, that's it. 
you don't use DOMs, you use views, and you embed views into each other. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's just a tag that says view inside of it. Yes. You build the interfaces slightly differently. React Native still uses JSX, but instead of using core HTML abstractions like DOM, you use specific React Native abstractions like view, text. Do you use iframes? No. Well, you can do. But them abstractions React Native had made makes you think less about your DOM structure and more about your view structure. You think about your application, you think about it like a tree, as in your DOM tree. You've got your nav bar at top and then it trickles down. When you think more about a React Native application, you're more thinking by a view basis. You've got your tab bar, you've got your top bar and how they combine. Two different ways of looking at technically the same stuff, React to React Native, but there's so much work going on right now. That's kind of very secretive because it's not hit mass adoption yet. React Native for X. Microsoft started React Native for Windows, a Windows-based application that would run on 365, UWP, Xbox, Windows Mobiles. Then they also extended that to React Native for Windows plus Mac OS. React Native code, JavaScript, controlling native modules. The dream, if you could say the one thing I could just have over everything else. Write once, run anywhere, right? Write once, run anywhere. Write React Native, and that would run compiled native Mac app, compiled native Windows app, compiled web app, compiled native iOS app, and compiled native Android app. You would be surprised how close you can get to that today using Expo. Not many people know what Expo is, but it's a service that sits on top of React Native. Anyone who knows anything about mobile development knows who Expo is. <laughs> yeah, but nobody knows about them in the React ecosystem. They use React Native for web. I think it's backed by, I'm going to say Kevin Bacon. It's Evan Bacon, but that's hilarious. Everyone makes the Kevin Bacon jokes to him all the time. I thought it was, it's either Kevin or Evan, but I was just going to go with Kevin. I would love to see an FS Jam framework adopt something like Expo when they hit their native side. The dream of write once in terms of a client and run anywhere is completely possible as soon as someone like Redwood would adopt something like Expo. Yeah, you asked Brandon about it if it would support React Native or Expo, and his response is ideally it would support both. So he's got Expo on his brain. It's almost this thing, if you support React Native Expo, you support React Native. It's like you can't support Next without supporting React. Yeah. In all essence, Expo is create a React app. You can eject out of Expo, and then it will compile your app down to pure React Native. They're just a wrapper that sits on top and do a lot of abstractions for you. The way that Evan has described it in his podcast that I've listened to is that they're doing a lot of the really complicated APIs with mobile, things that you don't necessarily have in just a browser. You looked into it. 
This is a podcast I listened to back in like April and that I just re-listened to recently. Yeah, dude, I'm aware of everything because I listen to all these podcasts. That's just how I kind of like get my awareness of what's happening in the scene. That's why the stuff you're always like into and nerding out about is stuff I've heard about. I just haven't dove into it yet because I had to actually learn web first. I've not dove into it. Well, next year I want to spend some time on mobile for sure, especially as it starts to bleed into some of these projects. If Redwood supports Expo when they do their React Native side, we're going to see it. We are going to see it, and it's going to be glorious. That's what everyone says about their Tower of Babel. Don't even ask me what Babel does. Just too much. It depends how... Do you know what an AST is? Because that's going to depend on whether it's going to take you a day or a year to understand Babel. I roughly know what AST is. I've got all the words on now. Abstract syntax tree. That's it. Yeah, it's the way that your program understands the grammar of your language. Like, if you think of when you have a sentence and it has verbs and nouns, you can create a tree that shows you where the verbs and nouns are and how the nouns relate to the verbs and all that goodness. Let's move on to our next thing. So you're talking about how you don't want to do all this AWS stuff. You don't like the AWS console. This is to me the whole reason for these what we call layer two clouds, which has traditionally been things like Netlify or Vercel. And we spent a decent amount of time talking about render now. One that I'm really interested in is Begin. Begin is from Brian LaRue who, funny enough, actually was the PhoneGap guy and Cordova, or the Cordova guy, which used PhoneGap, which we don't need to talk about because he doesn't like it when people talk about it and talk crap about it. When I did university, one of my modules was PhoneGap or Cordova. I think it was Cordova. Yeah, it's confused. I literally said React Native is stable. Facebook use it teach us react native and they went i can't do that in dreamweaver i went dreamweaver in like 2007 when i took a web design class in high school this was in like 2000 and i want to say 16 was when i went to university somewhere around there that's funny anyway so he was also big into node so what begin is begin is built on top of a framework called architect which is a bit like the serverless framework, actually. It's like the serverless framework, or it's like SAM, the serverless application model. All of these things are just cloud formation. It's a really easy way to write cloud formation and to have a simple syntax that compiles down to cloud formation. If you don't know what cloud formation is, cloud formation is a way to define your AWS stack. Going back to what we were talking about, you can have like DynamoDB, you can have your Lambdas, you can have you know an S3 bucket, you can have an EC2 server, you can have all this stuff, you can have it all wired up. CloudFormation is a way to define that architecture in code. That's why they call it infrastructure as code. If you've ever heard of Terraform, a Terraform is another kind of version of this. Begin to me sits at this mid-ground between all of these things of the infrastructure as code and the AWS server 
services and the front-end developers being us who want to use this stuff and want to have an easy interface. You can deploy an entire project, a full-stack project, on begin in 10 seconds. It is literally the simplest way to deploy anything I've ever seen in terms of like the power it gets you, but that then comes along with the opinionatedness of what you're getting. He is a firm believer that there's only eight services you need in AWS and that you can build your entire stack with just those eight services. Basically, DynamoDB, Lambda, API Gateway, and then you have your like event SQS, SNS, which are for your events, and then CloudWatch, and then CloudFront. Yeah, I almost got all of them. Uh, event Bridge, possibly, and then maybe Step Functions. But yeah, anyway, the point being that it's giving you like the ultimate opinionated AWS stack, which to me is just really interesting because I see it as like the Redwood for AWS because it's Redwood was this whole idea of how do we pick all these best of breed solutions from the React ecosystem and package them and integrate them all together. It was about curation, it was about integration. And to me, that is what I see Begin doing. So I want to figure out how to get Redwood deployed to begin with a single click. That is like my goal for 2021. I'm a hypocrite of this. I don't like AWS. I don't really like the concept of Amazon. You know, like that every product in the world is now easier to get and cheaper? Not necessarily. But for example, when you build a service, say you build Magic Links, that uses Cognito underneath it. That's using a service that uses AWS. I'm cool with that. But me personally using AWS, it just makes me feel icky. I prefer to support someone smaller in the chain. That's like the exact reason that why you would support a company like Begin. Exactly. At the end of the day, AWS is great. It does everything. But it kind of loses a face, a level of support, a level of care. What turns me off of AWS, you can just log in and do anything. But it doesn't really teach you. It doesn't really, like, make it easy. To me, the way I think about it, I think of it like a utility. Like, I think of it like it's power coming out of my wall. So, yeah, you're right. It's extremely impersonal in that respect. Like, I wouldn't expect to be able to call my power company and have, like, a long conversation with them. So, a tutorial how to plug in a plug. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's, that's totally true. And I think that's where the value of services like Begin exactly comes in because they simplify it. They give you really quick ways to get spun up and they allow you to leverage these really powerful utilities in a way where you don't have to figure out like you would have to wire your own power in your house, you know, kind of thing. Exactly. I don't have a problem with using AWS through a third party service. I know loads of services that I use that use AWS. I just don't like that it doesn't handhold you to a certain extent. Google Cloud's the same. I would say then this is where the things like the things like Amplify and AppSync, their docs are really good. Their examples are really fantastic. This is Natterdabbit. Natterdabbit and Swix and Ali Spittle, and there's a fourth person on the team now, is the best dev advocacy team in the industry right now. And they've done a lot of really great job on docs and stuff. So they recognize it and there's like pockets of AWS that are working on it. But do you navigate to Amplify through AWS? It depends. Like, you can use everything on the CLI and do everything through your code editor if you want to. You don't have to use any of their GUIs.
Interesting. My next technology, this is a doozy. It's two for the price of one. And this is more tool chain. One is Rome and two snowpack. Great picks. I would pick those myself if I thought of them. <laughs> Rome is, it's the Uber tool. It's meant to replace your linter and your compiler. And bundler. And bundler. I'm sure it does like minification. And it's by Sebastian McKenzie, who, as some people may know, was the original creator of Babel. So that's what I find to be pretty interesting, is that it kind of has like this Dino-like story, where it's like this creator who created this epic thing back in the day that has essentially become a standard. And then he's like, hey, I want to do it better. <laughs> the reason I'm really interested in Rome, the trickle-down effect. When someone like Redwood or Blitz, or Bison use it, that you don't have to integrate it yourself, I can't wait. It seems incredible. Just the idea of how Redwood would have to, Redwood would have to, would do a complete rewrite to bring in Rome. It would require an entire rewrite of Redwood to get Rome integrated in the way that it would be useful. So yeah, we'll see about that. But how much would it bring, you know? No, I mean, I've thought about this too. I've definitely thought about this too. And it's just like, yeah, we'll see in a year if we have the the bandwidth to entirely rewrite redwood we'll see <laughs> on the other hand something smaller but you could say almost as powerful in certain areas is snowpack snowpack's one job is to replace webpack and what do you think of this it's already being used by SvelteKit. SvelteKit is the kind of new Svelte meta framework that the whole team is working on and they have taken rollup out which was what Svelte was using before Rollup being created by Rich Harris, the creator of Svelte. And they have moved into Snowpack and this whole kind of like no bundling thing. And we should talk about ES modules and why this is all possible. This is all possible because JavaScript finally has a native module system, which took many, many years and is incompatible with Node and has been like this huge headache. And so now you have tools like Vite, as high level as possible. It's, it's a deep issue. Yeah, now that we've slowly gotten everyone over to ES modules, at least in terms of like modern browsers, evergreen browsers, I think you're good up to like IE 11, which is like 3% of the internet. So it's at the point now where if you're cool supporting 97% of the internet, you can use ES modules. Basically, you can just do your import at the top of your page and you could import from URLs. <sighs> Mind blown. Old school developers, like, you mean you could put a script tag in? Yeah, it's, it's literally full 360 is put the jQuery, you know, in your HTML DOM. You want Popper for Bootstrap? Stick that in your DOM as well. You want the Bootstrap script? Stick that in your DOM. Where Snowpack would be really exciting for me as well, if a framework was to integrate it, how much integrations could they save? Something like Snowpack, could be a lot easier for something like Redwood to integrate because it's just the bundler at the end of the day, not the compiler, the Babel Tower, as you said. 100%, yeah. Starting off with a thing like Snowpack, that would be a much more reasonable piecemeal thing if we wanted to add in some sort of new tech to Redwood. The biggest benefits of Snowpack are when it's done for you and it does a lot of it for you. For example, configuration of Webpack has been a running joke industry now for how many years? It's not changing, and that's life. Snowpack is really easy. It goes 
we'll just work a lot of it out for you. TypeScript, JavaScript, it doesn't matter to us. We'll work it out. It's the trickle-down effect. If Redwood or Blitz or Bison was to implement that, just by removing Webpack and replacing it with Snowpack, how much code, speed, and efficiency could be gained, I don't know. But from our, what I read on Snowpack, they seem to think that you can save a lot. This will be a really good topic to ask Peter about because Peter is low level enough into the Redwood code base that he'd actually probably be able to give pretty good answers to these questions. This is going to be my ultra small, ultra maybe technology that I'm interested to see where it goes in 2021. Get ready. Bootstrap 5. Bootstrap 5 is already here, isn't it? It's not. It's beta. It's in beta. I love Tailwind, but sometimes I'd rather just write BTN than 20 tags. No offense to Tailwind. I'm interested to see where it goes now it no longer relies on jQuery. Something I saw throughout the course of the year, Brad Traversy, one of the YouTube channels I follow, he's a long-time Bootstrap developer, so he kind of keeps up on those and he'll put out some new videos as kind of Bootstrap 5 has been has been coming out. That's funny. It's pretty rare that someone will say, I'm excited for Bootstrap next year. But you're right. It's a great utility. And it's like, it's something that served many web developers very well for a long time. And I, I'm not into the whole Bootstrap bashing thing. We're going to re-see it. It's going to be the Goliath. Bootstrap is going to try and take its crown back from Tailwind. I'm calling it now. That's a good hot take. That's the kind of hot takes I like this podcast to have. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'm interested in Bootstrap 5, but we have to see where it goes. Yeah, we'll see. All right, so for my last picks, I'm going to take a page out of the Svelte and View worlds. This is something that we've danced around a little bit throughout the course of the show, and I've really tried to invest some time into learning some of these projects. I gave a talk about both of these for Vue. You have Nuxt, which if you're familiar with Next in React, you will be able to wrap your mind around Nuxt pretty quickly. Provides a lot of the same sort of benefits in terms of structuring your Vue apps with pages and with server-side rendering and all the niceties that you get from a thing like Next. And we have seen really incredible projects projects like Blitz and Bison built on top of Next. So I'm curious to see what sort of things people are going to be building on top of Nuxt. And if no one does it, I might mess around with it myself just to kind of see how far I get. <laughs> Probably won't get very far, but it'll be fun to try. I've already got a repo called Blutz.js. So the other one would be Elder. Elder.js is a really fascinating Svelte project. It's a static site generator that can build 18,000 pages in a minute. So it's about how do you build a ton of pages really, really fast, and then also have those pages be optimized for SEO, because the creator Nick Reese was building a website for finding information about elderly care homes called Elder Guide. So that's why it's called Elder JS. And the docs are actually on the website. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I'm really into Svelte and I just like 
static site generators in general. I think they're like super cool tools and I really like blogging. This is a popular refrain from Swix is that Svelte is for sites, React is for apps. Redwood in many ways has encapsulated that idea of using React to build apps and really leaning into that. I am trying to figure out how to use these tools in the proper way. So to me, as someone who just wants a static site generator that can build a blog, Elder seems like a really good tool for that. That's also kind of cutting edge. I've still not looked into Svelte, but I hear it's good. It's the grass is greener on the other side effect. Everyone tells me, view three, you know, Svelte is, is awesome and it doesn't work with Redwood. <laughs> so it's a no. I do feel like you have to specialize and you have to like, obviously you have to pick a tool to build something with, but you can still compartmentalize in the sense of you can spend like, you know, a half hour or an hour, you know, a week kind of reading about this other thing or building out a proof of concept with it on the side. So for me, I always have probably like three or four projects that I'm kind of building simultaneously. And I give each of them like kind of a couple hours each week. And then that allows me to kind of continuously build in these different ecosystems and continue to learn with them. And that's why I picked a framework in each you got Redwood for React, Nuxt for Vue, and then Elder for Svelte. And I also think of those as being the kind of different layers of frameworks. The static side generator being the simplest layer, then the server side rendering being the next layer, and then the full stack with the database being the final layer. And then to me, it, it also mirrors where they are in their developments because React's been around the longest, and then Vue, and then Svelte. So yeah, can't tell I'm a nerd. Do you still believe my hot take about Bootstrap 5? <laughs> I don't think Tailwind ever overtook Bootstrap. I think Bootstrap has been the king and continues to be the king. But the hipsters, the hipsters love it. And we do too. So <laughs> We're the Redwood users. We're the biggest hipsters there are here. <laughs> I'm just looking at it and just like, like, why did I stop using Bootstrap? And then I remembered that it's super clunky. But then Bootstrap 5 looks pretty good. It's in beta right now, if you didn't know. Their first beta, I'm sure we'll see the production version by the end of 2021. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us for 2020. It's been a blast. We're really looking forward to 2021. We got lots of great guests coming up next month. We got Jason Kurt, we got Brick, and we got Kim Adeline. Thank you, everyone, for coming on this journey with us. If you want to give us any feedback there's multiple ways to do it the first one is joining our discord uh the link is in the description of the podcast the other one is twitter fsjam.org the final one that i'm trying to keep up to date but i'm struggling our instagram fsjam.org or finally if you really want to help us review our podcast on your platform of choice tell us what you think the other way that you can help FS Jam grow in 2021, recommend it to a friend. The most powerful marketing channel is the referral marketing channel. If you recommend FS Jam to one or two people, one of them implement it, refer it to a friend, we'll overtake next before long in the prominent full stack Jamstack application. That's it. And then you can tell your friends you're a thoughtfluencer. Thoughtfluencer. I'm, I might have to add that to my Twitter description. Thoughtfluencer. It is my Twitter description. That's exactly my Twitter, Twitter description. It's FSJam Thoughtfluencer. Wow. What does that even mean? 
It's a thought leader and an influencer. Right. Final thing. I would just like to say this podcast has been growing. There's two people that have been detrimental to the growth. Anthony, who has been doing all of the editing throughout the first year, and also guest management. So thankful to Anthony and also myself for organising it, conning the term and getting us rolling. But this wouldn't have been possible without you guys listening to us. So thank you. Good luck with 2021. And if possible, launch with an FS Jam framework. We'll catch you guys next time. It's what's called a DAP, a decentralized app, instead of a cryptocurrency. That's kind of the whole point of Ethereum. You can pay to use it as a programmable computer. So it's still cryptocurrency because you're still paying to use the computer, but you're using it to build an app.
Web3. Yes, exactly. No, I got very into this stuff back in like 2017, actually, so I'm actually pretty well versed in all of it. You can buy it and you can actually believe in like the value prop and that it's going to go up over time and that it's not just something that you want to trade for like volatility. I think the people who are really into this actually think it's going to be like the future currency, so they want to buy and hold essentially forever because they think they're just not going to need money. You can still, so you can use like the chains as you're logging because blockchain is also this, there's this big push to use it for identity. And that's instead, in addition to, it's basically like people want to run the whole fucking society on blockchain is, is what people want to do. <laughs>